everybody. You are listening to the Tough Like a Girl podcast. I'm Vera. And I'm Liz. And this is where we take a look at graphic novels and trade paperback collections with female protagonists. We're dipping back into um, major superheroes. Well, I say major. This one's a little bit uh, of a lesser known one. Um, but they did get their own title. So this is White Tiger. Uh, run, written by Tamara Pierce and Timothy Lieb. With art for most of the issues done by Phil uh, Briones and Alvaro Rio and uh, Ronaldo Andreo Silva handling the last of the issues contained in this. So, um, White Tiger is a character that I don't think either of us were particularly familiar with. Nope. No. I, like, I kind of only really knew it as like a punchline to a fun observation, which you've heard me say before, mm-hmm. which is that I remember when certain trolls, certain specific kinds of trolls mm-hmm. online, when the Black Panther movie came out saying, oh, you know, this is actually kind of racist because it's like all about black people. It's called Black Panther and he's black. What if there was a character called White Tiger? And people point out, well, actually... There is a character named White Tiger. There have actually been four different characters who have held the mantle of the White Tiger, and none of them have been white people. Uh, in this particular iteration, I believe still the most current um, person to take on the mantle of White Tiger, uh, Angela Del Toro, mm-hmm. uh, who is an ex-FBI uh, agent and the niece of the previous Black Tiger, which was her uncle Hector. So, this cover covers her sort of early days taking on the mantle and doing a lot, honestly. She's sort of dealing with neighborhood crime. She is tracking down, I can never remember the name of this group, but some, like, mystery organization that doesn't, that people seem to think is a myth, and yet there seems to be just as much evidence for its actual existence as all the crime organizations they are dealing with. Like the Yakuza and so forth, mm-hmm. um, and also she get, <laughs> and also she gets a job um, running personal security, and she's able to do all this because the amulet that grants her the White Tiger powers, the enhanced abilities, um, amongst other things, seems to require her to only get the occasional two-hour catnap, and she's good to go. I wish I could get the, like, catnap and be good to go and fight crime and do my job and all that. I mean, I think it says a lot about our age that, at this point, of her demonstrated superpowers, that's the one I want the most. Yep. (laughs) To be fully functional on two hours of sleep. That would be amazing. Yeah, it really would. Um, so, I've, I've got my thoughts. Um, what are your broad... I'm really curious to know yours because you you are like festering a lot. Um, I will go and tell you, I thought there was, I, so I like the idea behind it and I like that she's settling into this new role and figuring it out. I like that idea. There's too much going on. There's too many cameos of like people dropping by. There's too many, like, there's too much to figure out. There's, like, I'm intrigued by a lot of it, but I'm like, 
this this is enough for three books and like I need some more background which is interesting and it sounds interesting I want to know more about her family and her uncle and what happened with Matt Murdock but like I was, I was like, I, I can't keep track of everything. I don't know why everyone keeps showing up at, for like these quick drop-ins and then they're gone, like Emma Frost. And I just was like, there's a lot to keep track of. There, there is way, way, way too much. And there's a lot of appearances of both heroes and villains that like serve no purpose. Deadpool shows up for a page oh, I for no reason. He showed up even. The, yeah. li the lizard shows up twice for no reason. Like there's an issue that ends on a cliffhanger of her fighting the lizard underwater. Then on page one of the next issue, she pokes him in the eye and swims away and that's it. The lizard doesn't matter. It. <sighs> the, so, the ending was anticlimactic too. We'll come back to the ending. Uh-huh. We'll, oh. we'll, let, hmm. let, let's let you go. Hmm. Go. Let's go. We'll come back to the ending. So here's the thing. And I'm going to do something I don't normally do. Which is I'm going to get speculative about the writing process on this. And generally I don't do that because I don't usually see a lot of value in that. Mm -hmm. In this case, though, I feel like I have to. Because Tamara Pierce is not a comic book writer. No. She's a novelist. Mm -hmm. She's a well. <laughs> she's a well-regarded novelist in fantasy novels. She has multiple series, like since the '80s. Mm -hmm. And Timothy Lieb, her co-writer, is not only not a comic book writer; he's not a writer at all. He's her husband. Oh, I didn't realize that. According to his LinkedIn, he's a freelance editor. But as far as writing credits, it's this, and like he has a co-authorship credit on like one lore book for one of her fantasy worlds. Okay. So what we have here is a novelist and a tag-along. But here's the thing. Here's what's actually kind of morbidly fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. This doesn't work structurally at all. There's too much crammed in and it flows terribly. There are literally just one panel diversions that mean nothing, come out of nowhere, go nowhere, and I'm, you, well, you literally heard me a few times going, what the hell? <laughs> like, wh why? What the hell? I, I compared you to Elmo. Yes. <laughs> getting mad at Rocco and, like, being like, what? what? <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but, El but Elmo, Rocco needs a cookie too. What? <laughs> yeah. This book was your Rocco. Yes, it kind of was. So, like, the, the flow is absolutely atrocious. And it happens very early on because here's the thing. So, on pa literally page two, so down in, <laughs> down in this corner in the art... Uh -huh. That's the main recurring villain, or one of the main recurring villains, Cobra. Uh -huh. In a tiny corner of a panel, his face in a in a side view mirror of a car. Mm -hmm. Now, like five pages later, she's talking about how she spotted him in the car. And I was like, what? When? Because I didn't notice that. Oh, and that's yeah. The, that's the only image of him we see in this entire opening section. So there's there's this weird disconnect between the art and the storytelling. That part I'll come back to. But what's interesting to me about this is 
Strictly speaking, her being a novelist in and of itself doesn't explain this, because this isn't structured like a novel would be either. Because you get that sometimes. And, like, mm -hmm. I don't want to imply that a novelist can't write a comic. It's, they, both DC and Marvel have, on multiple occasions, brought in notable authors from various um, prose genres to write comics. Sometimes it works out, you get Greg Rucka, who was a crime novelist, but was also a very big Batman fan, and wrote some great Batman stuff. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get this, where I don't know what the hell the idea was, and sh this is clearly an outer comfort zone, but, but the reason I kind of bring all this up, it's not like she wrote it as if she was writing a novel. Mm -hmm. I feel like she is trying very hard to embrace the comic book format, mm -hmm. but that she just doesn't understand it. Maybe. I mean, that's... I mean, I feel like there's a novel worth of stuff in here. There is, but structurally, it's, it, no, it's, not, it's not a novel at all. It is overstuffed in a way that you could probably get away with a little bit better in a novel than you could with this. But, like, structurally, it's a mess, and that impacts the art as well. Because, like, the thing I just brought up, normally, most comic book writers also serve as guides to the artist, mm -hmm. describing what they expect to see in, you know, not only per page, but some of them, like, you deal with Alan Moore, per panel. Mm-hmm. You know, Alan Moore would literally type out an entire single space page to describe a single panel of a comic. Not that everyone should be doing that. Mm -hmm. But, like, there's an expectation that they guide it. But again, since she's not familiar with the format, I have a feeling she offered very little guidance to the artists. Mm -hmm. Which might have lent to some of the art fails that go on. That said, I actually don't think the art is very good anyways. Mm. The main way that that manifests... Mm -hmm. is there are a number of important recurring characters who aren't superheroes, so they have no costume. Mm -hmm. So this includes some of our villains, some of the people who she keeps running into on the street. Mm -hmm. um, the main ones being, like, Sano, his father, whose name I forget. Um, there's Eddie, who she keeps running into. Yep. There's the, and there's, like, the people she's now working for and with her ex-partner, whatever. But the thing is, the characters who don't have costumes, they're not drawn in a way that's very identifiable at all. No, they're not distinctive. No, like, even, like, her new boss at the, um... Guerrero? Yes, Guerrero. He has this scar and this mustache, but I compared, like, his look on two different issues. Mm -hmm. And if it wasn't for the scar, I wouldn't have realized it was the same guy. He mm -hmm. just doesn't match. The... They're not... So I, I found myself thinking... So if you ever... You might not know this. I'll get this off the top of my head. I'll, I'll pull up a reference while I'm talking about it. But you go back to designs in the 60s and 70s, and you have something like Norman and his son Harry Osborne's hair. Mm -hmm. And it is very distinctive, to the point of, frankly, uh, being silly. <laughs> yeah, see, I just pulled it off. The hair is silly. It's ridiculous with these weird. It's it's like it's it's, it's like it, it's it, they're gonna plant some seeds. Yeah, it. it's 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 like rose in in a in a dirt patch before you plant something. But here's the thing: silly as that is, it's not only super distinctive. It's distinctive from any angle. You show these guys from the back, you see those ridges in their hair, and you know who it is. Uh -huh. 
And that is exactly what is missing. And it wouldn't matter so much if we didn't have so many uncostumed characters who keep recurring. And so, something that might not have been a problem if we were dealing with way more costumed characters now becomes one. So that's that's something where, where I think the art is not doing great just completely on its own. But... Yeah. But mostly it's the writing flow. Like, I don't even know if I could find it again. But, like, there's this... I feel like sometimes the speech bubbles, like, are hanging and dangling. And I'm like, who are they... Who Who's talking right now? And, like, there's... It was there, weird. There are oftentimes too many words. There's often too much dialogue, honestly. Yeah. Without um, really telling us enough of backstory. I really felt like it was, like... I'm intrigued by this, and yet I don't know what's going on, and I'd like to know more, and, like... That being said, I liked her character. Uh, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll come back to that, but, like, here's a great example of just the flow is what the hell. So we have, we basically have a betrayal garden scene going on between yes. Sano and his, and, like, one of the guys who's helping them with their thing. Another thing, it feels really weird to me that they're all wrapped up and they're all super concerned over what is ultimately a forgery ring. Mm -hmm. But they're talking about it like it's more dangerous than the Yakuza when all it seems to do is just be a forgery ring. I, I don't know. It's weirdly presented. But anyways, we have this whole scene and there's like, there's Cobra in the trees like spying on them. And we have this dialogue between these two guys. And then the very last panel, which is a full width panel across... Tokyo, Japan, last year, is just this dude bowing in front of his father. And I don't know why. Like, what, what, what is, I, I had, what? All, <laughs> I had already assumed that this guy was this guy's father. And even if I had not assumed that up to this point, that is a weird ass way to relay that information. It's literally a single panel flashback yeah. that had nothing to do with what came before and has nothing to do with the page that follows. It's, like I said, it just feels like it was written by someone who understood that writing comics would not be the same as writing a book, but also really didn't understand the format at all. Mm -hmm. That having been said, mm -hmm. I do enjoy Angela as a character. Mm -hmm. She's driven, and I find the way that she approaches these things and that she has this mix of sort of a sense of fun, but is also very practical... I, I enjoy her. Mm -hmm. As much as we kind of ragged on how many people show up, some of the appearances I liked. I liked Natasha. I was going to say, Natasha made sense and kind of had that friendship vibe with her and, like, her appearances did make sense. Yep. Luke Cage. Even Danny Rand made sense. I know. I was going to say, I was like, you're going to forgive Danny Rand in this and that's I don't hate. Lot. I don't hate Danny Rand in the comics the way I hate Danny Rand in the in the. TV show? Netflix TV show. That is where I can't stand him. He's mm -hmm. fine in the comics. He's whatever. Um, but they were fine. Even Spider-Man, honestly, mm -hmm. who was there a little bit. It was just kind of cute and snarky like he is. And a little bit of a dork. Like they, they set up for a group picture and he's he's in the corner of the picture going, and, and you shall be called the Fellowship of the Ring. And everyone else just goes, nerd. Like, that's a cute moment. There's little things like that where, like... And if if we could have narrowed it down to... I would have said 
two out of the three main plots. If this could have been either just Angela, like, getting used to using the powers and, like, using them on the local crime elements mm -hmm. while getting this new job. she did that, as well as this new job, as well as, like, taking down this, like crime ring and like yeah like the crime ring thing that i would i would honestly remove that it's the weakest and least developed thing altogether and it also factors into what made me lose my mind at the end <laughs> i can't wait to hear this end you're okay. gonna go full elmo <laughs> okay so here's the thing first of all in some not very clearly drawn pages that I had to flip back and forth through about three times to even understand what the hell had happened. <laughs> oh, boy. Because, because like, the, they get in, the heroes get into a big fight with, I think it's technically two different crime gangs in yeah, this warehouse. Right. It's like the Yakuza and whoever the street people they're selling stuff to. I don't know. But, you know, it's, but they're, you know, they're superheroes. They're easily dealing with these people. And so, at one point, we see someone, presumably Sasano, or Sano, whatever it's, mm -hmm. yeah. Sano. Presumably Sano, like, in this really, like, what is this pose? Like, in this really badly drawn thing. Oh, it's zombie pose! <laughs> yeah. I guess the idea is that his sword was knocked out of his hand, except it looks like he's diving to get it. But then in the next, like but then in the next panel, he's drawing a gun, <laughs> and then he fires it, and it may it, and he shoots his dad. I think the implication was supposed to be he was trying to shoot oh God, Angela. That's right. I forgot about the ending and what a mess. Yeah, I, go I, for it. Take it yeah. home. <laughs> I think the implication was he was trying to shoot Angela, but that's not made clear. I had to go back and forth several times because the way that he's drawn when he actually takes the shot makes it look deliberate, like he's trying to shoot his dad on purpose. But then it can't be because what follows after makes no sense if that's the case. Mm -hmm. So what happens then? is because of the dishonor brought by having killed his father. And what is that? You have committed the crime for which there is no forgiveness in your world. He then takes off his shirt, takes a katana, or I'm sorry, Angela hands him a katana for him to honorably disembowel himself. So... Okay. <laughs> oh, man. Thing one. I am not, because I'm not going to take the time to do the research to determine whether or not this is just utter cultural assumption BS. Because mm -hmm. maybe, maybe it's something that kind of happens. What I am going to say is... Even if it is, I'm already super uncomfortable with it knowing this is written by an American white woman. Mm-hmm. So I'm already uncomfortable mm -hmm. from the get-go just with him doing this. It feels... It feels like something that she heard about once or saw in a movie once and then just shoved in. But even if that's not true, I am not okay with the idea that the hero of the story hands him a sword to do this and and friggin' Luke Cage, Iron Fist, Black... Well, Black Widow, maybe she would. But Spider-Man <laughs> especially yes. just stand there and let this happen. What? <laughs> There's the Elmo. <laughs> what? 
yanked me out of it so hard I had whiplash. Yeah, it was, I was like, wait, what? Oh, this is how it ends? What? Oh, no! Ugh. Yeah. Also, I'm like, we didn't have the buildup of the relationship with the father really like it wasn't properly. So, like, if this was supposed to be a dramatic moment, it isn't. It's just a, like... Wait, what? Yeah, again, that there's the too many plots crowding in. Because, like, if they, say, for instance, dropped Cobra, who was, you know, a recurring baddie in this, but ultimately didn't matter. If they had dropped him and all the time spent with him was spent building up these two mm -hmm. and their relationship, maybe, at least emotionally, I'd still call BS on this, but at least maybe emotionally the idea that one of them killed the other would matter. Yeah, I don't know. I just... <laughs> Uh, but of course they needed Cobra to spit on Luke so Luke could take his shirt off. So that is the point of Cobra. <laughs> <laughs> While you were flipping through the pages, I was like, oh yeah, they found an excuse for Luke. For Luke Cage to take his shirt off. Uh, uh, well, that, that was the point of Cobra and so they could have somebody really sleazily go, here kitty kitty. Ugh. Yeah, which like... That got old quick. Which she actually says herself. <laughs> so, I mean, you hung a lampshade on it, so okay. But, you know what actually I think I liked best? What? The excerpt from the Daily Bugle, page 7, which is their equivalent of the New York Post, page 6. Mm -hmm. Which is just running down, hey, check out this new costume superhero. Normally we don't like them, but she's so hot, it's okay. Like, <laughs> but it's very stupid, but it's making fun of, in-universe, the Daily Bugle, and mm. metatextually, the entire, you know, let's judge celebrities and gossip yeah. culture. I really liked that page. <laughs> hey, you liked one page. I liked one page. I liked, there are elements, there are... And... I... To a certain degree, I like the I like how much she is integrated into existing characters. Mm -hmm. But again, there's too many. Like the ones who have no business showing up at all. Emma Frost has no business showing up. Nope. Deadpool has no business showing nope. up. The Lizard has no business showing up. Yeah, we could have lost those three. Yeah. I feel like they put Emma Frost in there just because people had compared her or been like, oh, are you Emma Frost to her? And they're like, haha, here's the real Emma Frost. And I was like, it's not worth this. This one was confusing. And, well, at times, panel to panel, just confused me to follow. But just like, the, the storytelling choices are confusing. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not sure why this was done the way that it was. And more to the point, I'm not sure, given that they hired someone with no direct comic book experience, why they didn't pair them with, a, <coughs> with an editor who was going to exhibit a tighter rein on know. things. Well... I mean, I got... She has a lot of clout, so maybe they were like, ooh... I was going to say that might have been the thing really that, like, they... That, that the lure in was that they weren't... That they would offer... You know, Guy and Zoo, like, hey, you could use this character here. Here's all the background, and we'll help you. We'll help you with the continuity and whatnot. But they were, they probably agreed to not have a lot of editorial interference. But can we be honest? As much as editorial interference gets decried, rightfully, most of the time, some 
sometimes the editor needs to step in. Yeah. And I feel I feel like that should have happened here and didn't. Ugh. All right. Yeah, so not our favorite. No. I wanted to like it. I liked her. I feel like we do that sometimes where we're like, we're going to nitpick everything about this, but we like the character. And yeah. Like, like I, w I would read a White Tiger comic written by somebody else. Yeah. Angela's a solid character. Yeah. So. I like the family dynamic of it. Um... I want to know more about that, like, but all the other stuff. Less cameos, less, more, more Angela. More background information on her and her family and whatnot. Yeah. So, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we've actually got uh, two episodes worth of feedback to do, because we didn't do it last time. Uh, so, we'll be back in just a few minutes. Where am I? in the Palace of Glittering Delights. Who are you? I am Andrew Leyland, and for over 200 episodes, I have covered everything genre-related, from the obvious things that everyone talks about, Star Trek, to deep dives into the early issues of The Amazing Spider-Man, via the obscure, such as ITC's experimental science fiction dramas The Champions or Department S. It's very cosmopolitan. You never know who you meet next. In the Palace of Glittering Delights, Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Available from Two True Freaks and via your podcatcher of choice. Okay, folks, back for feedback. And as I said, we have two episodes to do it for. First for Kira, Alien Jungle Girl. Uh, we got a comment from Lizanne Oswald, which um, she had quite a few thoughts on the outfit that Kira was wearing and... Um, had a rather lengthy discussion talking about these types of uh, uh, outfits and arguments for or against them. Um, if you want to see her thoughts on that, they are on uh, the website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Um, and then we also had a comment from Brian Linton. Um, as a kid, I loved watching old Tarzan movies when they came on TV. As an adult, I realized that those movies and the novels on which they are based are full of racist and sexist stereotypes. I think of this when I'm like, wait, how, what was the most recent Tarzan movie we had? It wasn't that long ago. It was, was not, like, it was not that long ago. Uh, it had Margot Roby, I think. Yes. Yeah. And it had Samuel L. So Jackson. Just, yeah. 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 That's, that's, yeah. Look, I, I get, I get the fun. Cause like I, there are some problematic genres that I like. I like, treasure hunt movie i like indiana jones i like romancing the stone i like those things mm. but like i also do recognize there's a lot of inherent colonialism and imperialism baked into the things i don't judge anybody for liking them but yeah maybe we should stop making new yeah, ones new ones especially yeah yeah uh, the source material <laughs> alone um for example the idea that tarzan says uh brian linton despite the fact that he was raised by apes is inherently good and noble presumably because he is a white european male is incredibly troubling uh, white european aristocracy uh oh, don't right. don't forget that part because that's Part, mm -hmm. So you can add classism on top of everything else. <laughs> 
As a result, I tend to be cautious when approaching any story that uses the Tarzan trope. Not having read the book myself, I don't know how Kira, Alien Jungle Girl, handled the themes of race and gender. It didn't, really. No. Like, it handled gender insofar as the visual stylings really wanted you to know that Kira was a woman. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the fact that Kira is a purple-skinned female is promising that being fit. Said the fact that Princess Kira speaks proper English while Rolo and their people speak broken uh, broken English does raise a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. Especially Rolo. Out of curiosity, I tried to find out where the series went from here, but couldn't find anything beyond this one. Um, thanks for another incredible episode. Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I it might. I think it was Image published, but Image. Image can and will drop uh, a book that doesn't do well relatively oh, quickly. That um, makes sense. But we also had a couple of comments on uh, Cleopatra in space. Mm -hmm. First volume of that. Uh, first comment uh, coming from Brian Linton. Oh, and as a reminder, we had uh, Tim Price on as a guest for that one. Yes. On that one, Brian said... Regarding age-appropriateness, I confirmed with my daughter that she read Cleopatra in Space back in the fourth grade. She read the first couple of books and enjoyed them, but never got into the series as much as Tim's kids apparently did. Speaking of Tim, it was great to hear him on the show. Thanks for sharing your enthusiasm for the series with all of us. I was reminded that I deliberately read a lot of the comics and graphic novels that my daughter would read, but I've gotten out of that habit in recent years. I should make an effort to do it again. Thanks for another awesome episode. And Tim Price says, um, as a response to Brian Linton, I'm glad you enjoyed the episode, Brian, and thanks for the kind words. Sadly, my kids haven't gotten a lot of new graphic novels recently, so not as many chances to swipe, I mean borrow, their books. But yeah, our tastes overlap just long enough that it was great fun to discuss the books we like reading together. I'll be curious to hear what your daughter's reading. Take care, and thanks again to Vera and Liz for putting up with my Tim-splaining. <laughs> like Till next time, my punchers. Um, yeah, I, I think we... I was reading a Facebook conversation recently about how much people like, you know, watching their kid movies as adults and, like, how great it is. And, like, now a couple of my friends have kids and they're like, yes, I finally have the excuse to, like, keep playing these. <laughs> See, it's it's funny. I actually had this conversation with Mike because we watch all kinds of stuff together. We watched She and the Princess of Power together and Hilda and Gravity Falls. And we've recently watched all of Steven Universe and all this stuff. And I actually had the conversation with her like, it's funny because I never stopped watching this stuff as an adult anyways. Because mm -hmm. I have no shame mm -hmm. <laughs> about, about the things that I like. But I do really enjoy... Um, watching them with her and sometimes getting a different perspective on them. Because while she and I are often in agreement, sometimes our, our opinions differ. And it's it's always... She's she's becoming more articulate about what it is that she likes about things. Certain which things. is That's kind of Which cool. is, you know, as someone who has effectively turned... I guess you could call what I do criticism into their job. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to see her get better at explaining what she likes or doesn't like. Yeah. And finally, we had a comment from Nathan Yu. Hey guys, I really enjoyed the podcast. Just addressing some of Liz's concerns about Cleo as culturally appropriative. 
It's interesting to note that the historical Cleopatra would likely have been at least partially ethnically Greek. This is because she came from a line of Greek pharaohs who took over when Greece did a colonialism on Egypt. Does that actually make it less problematic? I don't know, and frankly wouldn't feel comfortable making that call as a white guy myself, but it's interesting nonetheless. Yeah, so I went looked into this, and there's a lot of back and forth on Cleopatra and like what her heritage is and everything. And you know, the fact that the it is part of it is set in Egypt and has some trappings of it. That that alone makes me a little bit uncomfortable as a white person and like the fact that it's written by a white person. Even if you do have Cleopatra who might be Greek, it's hard to tell when someone was born thousands of years ago. It was, and also the thing is, even if you even if that is true, it doesn't really impact it because culturally what's being depicted is Egypt. Egypt. Yeah, that's like, my point. Like, the like book doesn't grapple Egypt. with the idea that she might be Greek. So, the fact that that might be the reality, as far as the depictions within the book, that doesn't, that's a wash. That doesn't really matter. Yeah, because it takes part, the beginning takes place in Egypt. You're dealing with other Egyptians as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. But, yeah, Cleopatra, there's been a lot of back and forth on her, and I, I'm just not going to... Way too far oh, into no, the waters. I, I wouldn't touch it either. That said, she is a fascinating historical figure, and if you find her interesting, consult your local library. Yes. <laughs> Good plug. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Um, so that's what we had for comments. Remember, you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And uh, we don't know what we're doing next month. No, we don't. No. We'll figure it out. <laughs> we'll figure it out, and you'll find out when uh, when we drop the episode. So, yeah, that'll be it for now. Hopefully something less frustrating than White Tiger. Oh. Like, it's it's far from the worst. I don't think it would... I don't think it would make my five worst. I was wondering if it would. No, I don't think it would, but it is a frustrating and confounding at times read. I don't think I got as, as frustrated as you did, but I I still was like... <laughs> this is a lot. <laughs> it's easily in the lower half of what we've read. Like, if we were to average out my average opinion, this comes in below that. Mm -hmm. So I would rank Fair. this as below average for what we've read. But no, this wouldn't. This wouldn't make the but. This might not even make the bottom ten. Ah, as frustrated as I got with it. She's still a really good character, and that made for a lot. It does help because, and I, and maybe it speaks to the degree to which Tamara Pierce understood the character, or maybe it just speaks to the strength of the character that that still comes through in a mm. not great story. Yep. So, credit to that. Yes. But that'll be it for uh, for this time, folks, and uh, we'll see you with whatever we're doing next month. Bye. Bye. Tough Like a Girl is a Council of Geeks production and is presented on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Comments can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com and you can support the network by finding Fire and Water Podcast Network on Patreon. This particular show enjoys support from Carolyn and Brian Linton. Our logo art was created by Nick Buxom and our theme music is by Erica Dreisbach. Thanks again for listening.